Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federal Society virtual event. My name is Jack Derwin, and I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. Today, we're very excited to host a discussion titled The Future of Chevron Deference at the Supreme Court, featuring a stellar panel of constitutional law experts. In the interest of time, we'll keep intros brief now. You can view our speakers' full bios at fedsoc.org. In a moment here, I'll turn it over to our moderator today, Ellie Nakmani. Ellie is a recent graduate of Harvard Law School, where he was editor-in-chief of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Currently, Ellie is a senior research fellow at the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. After discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q&A. So please enter any questions you'd like answered into the Q&A function at the bottom right of your Zoom window. Finally, I know that as always, I'll express of opinion on today's program for those of the guest speakers. And with that, Ellie, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you, Jack, for the kind introduction. I am thrilled to moderate this teleform about the future of Chevron deference with two brilliant panelists. The Supreme Court decided multiple administrative law cases this term, but in no majority opinion did the court cite its landmark 1984 precedent, Chevron versus NRDC. The lack of citation of Chevron raises an important question. Is the court ignoring the Chevron doctrine, which provides for judicial deference to agency interpretations of ambiguous statutes? Whatever the status of Chevron at the Supreme Court, lower courts continue to apply the doctrine. Scholars have lodged thoughtful critiques of Chevron's rule, but after October term 2021, its continued vitality is unclear. This panel analyzes what's next for Chevron, with a particular focus on what Chevron's conspicuous absence in the court's opinions this term might mean for the doctrine's future. Today, I am joined by Yaakov Roth and Professor Thomas Merrill. Yaakov Roth is a partner at Jones Day in Washington, D.C. He recently argued before the Supreme Court in West Virginia v. EPA, where he represented the North American Coal Company. Yaakov graduated summa cum laude from Harvard Law School in 2007. He clerked for Judge Michael Boudin of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit and Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court of the United States. Professor Thomas Merrill is the Charles Evans Hughes Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. He recently authored a book about Chevron entitled The Chevron Doctrine, Its Rise and Fall and the Future of the Administrative State. Professor Merrill graduated from the University of Chicago Law School. He clerked for Chief Judge David Bazelon in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and for Justice Harry A. Blackman on the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, thank you both so much for being here and for taking the time. Yaakov, I'm going to start with you. The premise of this teleform seems to be um, that the court might be ignoring Chevron or that there might be some shift in Chevron's future. Do you get the sense, is the court actually ignoring Chevron, as some commentators have said? If so, when and why did the court start ignoring Chevron? Is that trend likely to continue? Thank you so much, Ellie. And first of all, um, thank you for having me today. Uh, it's an honor to be invited to participate on a Federal Society Teleforum and particularly an honor to be invited alongside one of the great scholars in this area and Professor, Professor Merrill. Um, I think you can't really read the decisions over the past few terms and not get the sense that there's some avoidance uh, of the Chevron doctrine on the part of the Supreme Court. Um, and we can talk about some of the reasons why that might be the case. Um, at the same time, 
I'm at least not convinced uh, that, you know, you hear some people say, oh, Chevron is dead. I think the reports of Chevron's death have been exaggerated, um, both uh, in the Supreme Court and particularly in the lower courts. So I don't know if you want to get in right away to some of the reasons why we may be seeing less of a focus on Chevron in the court's decisions. Um, but I don't think it's as, I don't think we're past the point where uh, deference to agencies makes a difference in, in the law. Excellent. And uh, Professor Merrill, I'll, I'll pose the same question to you and, and please feel free to, to use this really as a springboard for opening remarks more generally just about the panel, right? Is the court ignoring Chevron? If so, when and why? And is the trend likely to continue? Uh, yeah, great. Thanks again for having me on the on the panel. I greatly appreciate it. Um, uh, yes, the court is definitely ignoring Chevron. Um, uh, if you look, push things back a little bit, uh, you'll find that uh, the last time the court uh, applied the so-called two-step standard uh, of the Chevron doctrine was 2016 uh, in a case called Cuso Speed Technologies. Um, since then, uh, there's been a little bit of reference to Chevron in separate opinions, but the court has not applied the Chevron doctrine uh, in any case. So we're now going on uh, uh, basically five or six years of, uh, of the courts ignoring uh, Chevron as a decisional tool, at least. Uh, the, um, uh, during the beginning of this period from 2016, uh, for the next couple of years, uh, uh, some justices made remarks about this. My favorite is from Justice Samuel Alito, uh, at one time uh, a staunch uh, supporter of the Chevron Doctrine, who remarked in 2018 in a separate opinion, uh, the court, for whatever reasons, is simply ignoring Chevron which he characterized as an important, frequently invoked, once celebrated, and now increasingly maligned precedent. So that's an interesting comment from Alito suggesting that, um, uh, that uh, there's some kind of internal disagreement about Chevron on the Supreme Court. Um, how did this come about? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, one important uh, piece of data uh, that everyone should be aware of is that and I take this from a separate law review article that was recently published, that the Supreme Court between the time of Chevron becoming understood to be a standard of review, uh, roughly 1986, really about 1992 is when the court uh, clearly had embraced Chevron as a standard of review. But over, over the course of the years between then and 2016, the court uh, relied on Chevron as a standard of review in 107 decided cases. So um, it's really quite remarkable that uh, all of a sudden uh, you get this uh, silent treatment about Chevron from the Supreme Court. Uh, how to explain this? Um, uh, no one knows for sure exactly what's going on. My own view is that a couple of factors interacted to uh, uh, create this kind of very strange situation where you have a highly cited venerable precedent that's used by the court repeatedly and then all of a sudden bingo they turn off the switch and we don't say anything about it at all um i think the 19 the 2013 case of city of arlington versus fcc was a kind of watershed event um, uh, that was the case that presented the question of whether or not agencies get chevron deference for interpretations of the scope of their own authority 
and Justice Scalia, who I will remind people was always uh, very pro Chevron, wrote the majority opinion uh, for five justices in which he said, yes, that you can't distinguish between uh, questions that fall within the agency's authority and questions about the scope of their authority. And therefore, Chevron has to apply to questions about the scope of agency authority. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote a very strong dissent in that case, joined by Justices Alito and Kennedy, in which he said, wait a minute, this really can't be the case. Uh, uh, under separation of powers principles, uh, you know, agencies have no authority to act or to interpret anything unless Congress has given them has delegated authority to them, authority to them uh, to do so, uh, and to say that we're now going to defer to agencies' interpretations of their own authority is basically to uh, undermine a key proposition of separation of powers. Uh, so Roberts was um, quite uh, unhappy with the city of Arlington decision, and I think that was that decision was also watershed because it sort of reflected a serious split within uh, the group of uh, conservative justices and, and I suppose also conservative leading uh, commentators about administrative law or, or uh, constitutional law more generally. Uh, so I don't think it's an accident that a, uh, shortly after uh, City of Arlington was decided, the Chief Justice in the King versus Burwell case, which involved uh, uh, an issue under the Affordable Care Act, uh, uh, said that, well, yes, the statute's ambiguous, but he declined to apply the Chevron doctrine on the grounds that uh, uh, this was a major question of uh, uh, political and economic significance, and it was implausible that Congress would have dedica delegated authority to the agency to resolve the question. So he proceeded to resolve it uh, for himself uh, and the majority of the court. Um, uh, so there was a split in the conservative movement at, within the court, I think, about uh, possible limits on Chevron. Uh, I also think that uh, uh, conservative commentators, including my colleague Philip Hamburger at Columbia, uh, began to raise serious questions about the constitutionality of the Chevron doctrine. Uh, and I, it was uh, no accident that during the Trump administration, uh, uh, the House of Representatives, at least during the first two years, the House was controlled by the Republicans, uh, passed bills that would have overruled, overruled the Chevron doctrine, and that uh, President Trump's first two appointments to the Supreme Court, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, uh, had a number of uh, remarkable characteristics, but among them was that they had both written publicly, either in opinions or large articles, uh, highly critical of the Chevron doctrine. So I think that uh, the conservatives uh, turned against Chevron uh, shortly after city of Arlington uh, and into the Trump administration. Uh, the, another factor was that the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the justices themselves, I think, became quite wary about Chevron because I think the, the liberal justices suddenly decided that they liked Chevron. Um, uh, they liked the administrative state better than the conservatives do. And Chevron was a pillar of deference to uh, administrative agencies. Uh, but they were reluctant to apply Chevron for fear that the conservatives would use it as an occasion to say something negative about Chevron or maybe even uh, overturn or strictly limit the doctrine. Um, uh, and uh, meanwhile, I think uh, sort of centrist conservative justices like uh, Roberts, uh, maybe uh, others like Alito and so forth, uh, were wary about uh, doing anything too radical to Chevron because they, they had the court had applied it in 107 cases. And it would be a little bit awkward to explain how you were overruling a decision you'd applied 107 times because you'd suddenly discovered that it was fundamentally flawed. 
um, or legally unsupportable. So I, I think there was a kind of a, uh, I think Alito put his finger on it. There was a kind of a shared uh, tacit agreement among the justices um, uh, that they couldn't quite figure out what to do about Chevron. Uh, so it was best uh, to do nothing uh, with regard to Chevron. So if you look at the cases from recent years, including this last term, uh, you can find a number of cases. Uh, there was one last year called the American Hospital Association case, which involved a complicated Medicare reimbursement issue. Uh, the statute, to my superficial reading, seems you know, susceptible of at least two different readings. It's the kind of case that you would have historically expected the court to apply Chevron uh, to decide, but instead there was no mention of Chevron. Um, and the unanimous opinion, uh, I think it was by Kavanaugh, uh, simply uh, interpreted the statute uh, de novo without paying any attention whatsoever to the agency's uh, view. But you can find similar opinions from liberal justices as well in the last few years. Um, uh, when they get opinion writing assignments, they tended to use uh, independent judgment, de novo review, rather than invoking Chevron. And, and again, my my suspicion is that this is not because they think deference is uh, should never be. We shouldn't have no deference doctrine whatsoever, but they just don't, simply can't figure out what to do about Chevron. So we have a very interesting state of affairs here, um, and um, it's uh, unpredictable uh, what's going to happen going forward. Fantastic. Now, Yakov, Professor Merrill says there are some internal disagreements on the court about Chevron now and what to do with it. Do you agree with that assessment? And what do you think might be the reason or reasons that's going on? Yeah, thanks. I, I do agree. I mean, I think that um, you need to sort of keep in mind that when the court is deciding a case, they the justices are often trying to find the the approach to the decision or to the resolution of the case that can generate the broadest consensus or agreement among the group. And my sense at least is that if you go back a decade or two, Chevron actually allowed them to do that uh, because you had sort of a wider, potentially wider range of views about statutory interpretation, for example. Um, but you also had justices who were willing to say, well, you know, if I were doing this on a blank slate, I probably would read it this way. Um, but I can see the arguments on the other side. So, we're, you know, if we're going to rule based on Chevron, you know, that that's enough on that sort of deferential standard of review that Professor Merrill mentioned. And and then by the same token, you had justices who would say, well, maybe I would read it actually the other exactly the other way if I were doing it myself independently. Um, but if I'm going to apply this more deferential approach. Um, I can agree that the agency has this power. And so it sort of was a way to bring um, justices together and, and write a decision that more of them could join. I think maybe perhaps one of the things we're seeing now is you have some convergence um, on questions of how to interpret statutes more than you used to uh, among particularly the, the majority of the court. And you have disagreements about the sort of fundamental foundations of the Chevron doctrine. As the professor mentioned, you know, Justice Thomas has written about whether it's, uh, whether Chevron is consistent with separation of powers. Uh, Justice Gorsuch has written about that in some of his separate opinions. So you have this more sort of purist approach to separation of powers that um, leads to doubts about the principle of deference. And so introducing that is not actually helping build a majority anymore the way it used to. It's actually cutting the other way because then you have people splitting off and saying, 
well, you know, I don't agree with that way, way of approaching it, even though potentially all of them might agree this is the best reading of the statute. And so I think, you know, that may lead to what we call avoidance, because at this point, we just have an easier way of deciding these cases based on um, the sort of accepted view of, of statutory interpretation. And, and we conclude the statute is not ambiguous and we never have to get into the, get into the issue. So that's one theory or perhaps one factor for why we might be seeing less uh, reliance on Chevron now uh, on the court. So Professor Merrill, let's take these possible disagreements that are going on in the background of the court uh, and apply it to this most recent term. You mentioned American Hospital Association against Becerra, and I think some folks were quite surprised. Chevron was a hot topic at oral argument. There was a significant amount of briefing about Chevron. And then, as you mentioned, the case comes out and there is no mention of Chevron deference in the final opinion. What do you think happened? Well, I, I, I again, I just think it's a it's a product of this sort of shared uh, tacit agreement upon, upon the part of the justices not to uh, um, not to do anything with Chevron until they can somehow see their way to you know a secure majority uh, one way or the other that uh, uh, decides how to tweak Chevron or what's going to replace Chevron or whatever they decide to do. I do think that the West Virginia case, which I suspect we're going to discuss in a bit. Uh, is a step in that direction. I think that the you know the court's full-throated endorsement of the major questions doctrine has to be understood to be a carve out from Chevron, and that probably uh, alleviates some of the uncertainty or, or the pressure, if you will, uh, uh, within the, uh, the the membership of the court about uh, what to do about the the general issue of judicial deference to agency interpretations of law. Um, whether that's enough of a pressure relief valve or not, I don't know. Uh, I, I think lower courts are going to be totally mystified. Uh, there was no mention of Chevron in the West Virginia case, uh, at least in the majority and concurring opinions. Uh, uh, Kagan, in her dissent, made a very passing reference to it, but not not to suggest it should have been applied. Um, so I think the lower courts, if I were a lower court judge, I'd scratch my head and say, well, major questions are going to be decided by the courts. Uh, whatever that means, whatever major question means, uh, minor questions are going to be covered by Chevron. So I'll proceed that way until I get some further clarification from the Supreme Court about what to do. Um, I, I do think that I don't know that Chevron was way a, a sort of consensus building doctrine on the court. Um, yes, I think you could find a, a long string of cases in which the justices applied Chevron uh, to resolve a statutory interpretation question. But, you know, they've certainly proven that they have other ways of deciding these cases using, you know, standard tools of statutory interpretation without making any reference to Chevron. Um, and there was, you know, I think another aspect of what's going on here, which is kind of funny, is that... Uh, I think Chevron, the Chevron doctrine, as I sort of explain in my book, uh, really started in the lower courts. It started in the D.C. Circuit. It was not, the Supreme Court itself never intended the Chevron decision to be a new standard of review until the lower courts suddenly decided it was a standard of review. Uh, but I think the Chevron is very popular among lower court judges. Um, 
because it's easy. Step one, step two, uh, you know, you don't have to delve into legislative history. You don't have to get involved in other types of complicated ruminations about things. And so for lower court judges, which are much busier than Supreme Court justices, lower court judges have these very large caseloads. In particular, if you're on a court like the D.C. Circuit, which is against these god-awful complicated administrative law cases, you know, with statutes that are hundreds of, hundreds of pages long and, and the issues are very complicated and so forth. Chevron is a blessing because you can just sort of focus in on the point of controversy and then ask whether it's clear or ambiguous. And if it's uh, ambiguous, defer to the agency. If it's clear, you don't, you just accept whatever you think the clear meaning is. And that sort of simplifies the decision-making process quite a bit. Agency lawyers also find it helpful for the same reason. So one of the curious things I think about the current state of affairs is the Supreme Court seems to have forgotten uh, that one of its functions is to provide guidance to lower courts about how to decide these cases. I think because they have so few cases themselves, you know, they've gotten used to the idea that they can spend infinite amounts of time delving into the nuances of any particular case, like in the West Virginia case, a very complicated case. But uh, the Supreme Court has the luxury of getting involved uh, in these things at a fairly deep level, whereas the uh, if without the Chevron doctrine, the lower courts are going to be kind of flummoxed as to what they're supposed to be doing. So I think the court needs to be cognizant of the fact that one of its functions is to provide guidance to the lower court judges. And at this point, they desperately need some clearer guidance. Well, Professor, I, I could not be happier that you mentioned West Virginia the EPA because I, I can't think of anybody better to talk about it with than Yaakov. Um, Yaakov, having been so involved in that case and seeing obviously how it came out, what is your take on how the major questions doctrine as articulated in that opinion in West Virginia v. EPA, how does that now fit in with the Chevron doctrine? Is this question of whether an issue is major or minor now, can we call it a step negative one before Step zero, one, two, is the major questions doctrine just another traditional tool, maybe not so traditional to be applied in step one? What do you think on that? Yeah, so as I was preparing for, for the oral argument in the court, um, I obviously went back and read all the opinions that have been cited as sort of precursors to the major questions idea, although none of them use that term, and tried to figure out how it fit into the analysis. And um, at least on my read, uh, I found cases that had used it as sort of a step zero, sort of break off from the whole framework before you even start. Um, there are some cases that I thought used it more as a step one analysis, um, as in, we don't think this statute is ambiguous because this principle informs the way we construe the statute. And then there are at least a couple that, that I think used it as a step two, uh, at step two of the Chevron analysis saying, well, we don't think this interpretation is uh, a reasonable one because of the vast you know, implications it would have for agency authority. So I was sort of thinking about, well, what if, if I get asked, you know, where does this fit in? Um, what am I going to say? And I thought I would say, well, you've done, you've done all three. So <laughs> I don't, can't really give you an answer, but it's not my fault. Um, the other thing that sort of yeah, the conclusion that I drew from it was I wasn't totally clear what what difference it made, um, which step of the analysis the major questions sort of factored in at. Um, maybe the professor has an idea on some practical implications, but I, I couldn't really I couldn't 
determine that it actually made much of a difference where in the analysis it was used. So, you know, I think you can think of it as um, just a, a, a separate framework, right? Uh, we have Chevron, but Chevron doesn't apply uh, when the question at issue falls into this category. Uh, that's probably the easiest way of thinking about it. But there are other ways, and I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of difference ultimately, which it is. So, Professor, can you give us a bit of a, a doctrinal breakdown, maybe more of a, of a practical understanding of, in light of West Virginia v. EPA, how do we fit the major questions doctrine into whatever we, we believe the Chevron inquiry is now? Some people take the position, right, that Chevron only has one step, but maybe we'll call it the, the formal Chevron inquiry um, to the extent we're still doing it. Um, what is the major questions doctrine as articulated in West Virginia EPA mean for Chevron going forward? Uh, another good question. Um, I do think it matters how uh, one conceptualizes where the major questions doctrine fits in. Um, um, except for King versus Burwell, which I mentioned earlier, uh, the opinion by Chief Justice Robertson involving the Affordable Care Act, where he claimed that uh, uh, an exchange established by a state includes an exchange established by the federal government <laughs> because the statute was ambiguous, he said. Um, um, until that case, uh, the, the precursors of the major questions doctrine seemed to treat this uh, idea as a kind of a uh, a kind of uh, an afterthought, maybe, or at least a, a kind of rhetorical device uh, to uh, cement an analysis either based of, on the statutory language and, and structure under step one, or in the case of the utility air regulatory group, um, uh, an analysis about whether the interpretation was reasonable given the overall structure of the statute uh, at step two. Um, so, uh, until King versus King versus Burwell was sort of a, a watershed in the sense that Roberts treated this as a kind of a threshold question, uh, without regard to uh, having engaged in statutory interpretation uh, before resolving before reaching the, the question whether this was major or whether one could plausibly say that Congress must have delegated this to an agency or not. Um, uh, so uh, West Virginia is, you know. I think the the Roberts opinion conceivably could be read in the future as uh, treating major questions as part of the sort of overall statutory construction exercise that courts engage in. Step one, if you will, or maybe step two or something like that. Uh, the Gorsuch concurrence to me reads much more like that this is a threshold question um, that courts will answer uh, more or less in the abstract um, before getting into statutory interpretation. If that's what it means, I, I find myself in sort of strong disagreement with it um, because it's essentially asking courts to make a sort of a political science type uh, judgment. You know, is this controversial? Is this politically uh, divisive? Is it something that Congress has tried to legislate on and failed? How many people are affected? How many dollars are affected and so forth? These are the kind, these are not really statutory interpretation questions. They're questions about uh, politics. Uh, and I, I think it's best courts, courts would be well advised to stick to their knitting, which is the statutory interpretation, uh, with, which where they have a comparative advantage. Um, and I would rather see um, the question of the agency's de delegated authority 
decided as a matter of statutory interpretation rather than under some rubric like major questions. Uh, so I think a very simple deference doctrine that might be uh, either a tweak or some kind of uh, evolution of the Chevron doctrine would be that, you know, step one uh, did, you know, you'd ask at step one, did Congress delegate this issue to the agency or not? And then you'd have to decide as a matter of statutory interpretation, uh, yes or no. And if it did delegate it to the agency, then you'd ask whether or not the agency's interpretation was reasonable or not. That would be a sort of, to me, a very uh, common sense kind of way to proceed in these cases. Um, the major questions doctrine, at least in the Gorsuch formulation, seems to be some, invoking some kind of step negative one or step zero subprime or whatever before you get to Chevron. Uh, I think lower courts are going to find this very confusing. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of, if, if they think that what they have to do is ask the abstract question of this is being major or not, um, with all these different variables floating around, uh, before they get into statutory interpretation, you're going to see conflicts all over the place with different judges in the lower courts deciding it's major, it's not major, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think in an ideal world, the court should have striven, strove, whatever the verb is, for more simplicity. Uh, uh, rather than more complicated complications. The problem I think is that, is that, is the city of Arlington case again, you know, uh, justice Roberts does not like to lose. So he was very much anxious to sort of vindicate his positions as an indecentive in city of Arlington, but he also doesn't like overruling Supreme court cases as we saw in the Dobbs, his Dobbs concurrence and so forth. So, I think Justice Roberts likes the major questions doctrine as kind of a workaround to get back at least one third of the way to what he was arguing for in city of Arlington. Um, but the workaround increases the complexity of the doctrine, I, at least potentially quite a bit. And therefore I, I think it's not, was not a smart, I think it would have been much better for the court just to overrule city of Arlington and say, look, the question here is whether uh, EPA has authority under section 111 D of the clean air act to, dictate to states how to regulate existing sources of pollution? And the answer is no, they don't have that authority, period, full stop. So I think we have a good idea now of, of what is or at least is not going on uh, at the Supreme Court. But as Professor Merrill mentioned, you have, of course, the lower courts are, are looking at what's going on at the Supreme Court with respect to Chevron. And there may be some questions now uh, as these cases are getting litigated. Yaakov, as somebody who, who litigates these agency statutory interpretation questions, in light of the Supreme Court's last term and in light of what we saw, or more, maybe more importantly, what we didn't see, how do you think this trend is going to affect the lower courts? How is this going to affect how litigants approach agency statutory interpretation cases in the lower courts, notwithstanding whatever the, the Supreme Court is eventually going to do with respect to Chevron? Yeah, I mean, I think in the at least in the short term, there's probably going to be some sort of bifurcation in the way courts handle this, um, as between the courts that are courts and judges, I guess, who are more closely following these trends at the Supreme Court and those who are not. So I still, I think you are still going to have many, perhaps, probably most lower courts um, stick to the Chevron framework because that's what. That's what they know, right? That's what's sort of, it's still the law. Um, 
put aside the sort of extraordinary high profile cases like West Virginia, it's still supposed to be the framework that they follow. And as Professor Merrill pointed out, uh, it does make their job easier, which is why I think we're never going to really see it go away entirely. Um, there are a lot of questions that courts don't really want to have to answer in the first instance and realize they're probably not well situated to answer in the first instance. So I think we will uh, continue to see lower courts uh, rely on Chevron in, in those cases. At the same time, um, I I would not be surprised to see uh, a shift in the DC circuit uh, in the, the degree to which they uh, rest on Chevron in reaching their decisions. It's, I mean, we would need empirical analysis to see whether that happens or not. But, but I think those judges, you know, because they are doing administrative law so often, and because many of them are paying pretty close attention to what the Supreme court is doing. Um, I think we would, we're likely to see a sort of similar trend, not getting rid of it. They'll still cite it, but I think where there are cases that can be resolved uh, without it, um, I think we'll probably see more of that in the DC circuit. Um, you know, one anecdote, I was speaking to a friend the other day who had an argument in the DC circuit and told me the briefs were full of Chevron. I mean, the briefs were very, very Chevron heavy and they had an oral argument and there was not one question asked about Chevron. Um, so I think, you know, they they get, they get the hint. Um, if, if you're sitting on that court, um, more than more than most judges in the country will. Yakov, if I could just quickly follow up. I mean, we, we talked about what the lower court judges might do, what litigants challenging uh, agency statutory interpretations will do. Do you think we're going to see a shift from the Office of the Solicitor General or at least from uh, the government in the way that it briefs some of these cases that it might rely on Chevron less or just not cited at all when trying to defend an interpretation? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> The, the, the litigants and the judges that we all take our cues from the same place. So, um, you know, you mentioned the American Hospital Association case from the Supreme Court last term. I went back and looked at the briefs and Chevron was basically kind of the last two pages of both briefs as a tack on, as, as I read it, both on both sides. Um, so it may be true that it's a case where, uh, you know, a decade or more ago, we would have thought this is a really classic case for Chevron, but the briefs didn't treat it that way. The briefs really treated it as secondary afterthought material. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, again, that's because they're seeing the way the court has been handling these cases in recent years. And so it's, it's, it's not going to be your lead point. Professor, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity as well on the lower courts. Do you foresee any changes going forward or, or have you seen any changes um, as yet? given the way that the Supreme Court has approached Chevron with what the lower courts are doing with these agency cases. Right. I can't pretend to have uh, comprehensively surveyed lower courts in the last few years. Um, um, I, I do think a number of things are going on here. First of all, sophisticated Supreme Court litigants, the SG's office, for example, uh, are very aware of what goes on in the Supreme Court. They take their cues from the court's behavior. So um, they will react to this term by uh, downplaying the, the use of Chevron even more than they have already. Um, um, I, I did take a little bit of a look at the SG's behavior during the Trump years. Uh, the Trump administration, at least the general counsel's office of the Trump White House, was obviously uh, 
against Chevron in some general sense, um, uh, as evidenced by the uh, judicial uh, nominees that they made. Uh, um, uh, but interestingly enough, the Trump SG did not completely stop citing Chevron. It may have just been an accident of, you know, which part of the SG's office or the Justice Department the case came out of. Um, but there was clearly a uh, reluctance to heavily rely on Chevron deference overall during the Trump years. Um, and my guess is that going forward, the SG will also continue to be cautious, maybe even more cautious about relying on Chevron because they don't think the Supreme Court wants to hear about Chevron. On the lower courts, I think you have to distinguish between the D.C. Circuit and a lot of other circuits. Um, the D.C. Circuit was packed by the Obama administration with liberal judges, so that there's now a majority of left-wing judges on the D.C. Circuit, uh, like the panel that decided West Virginia before it came up to the Supreme Court. Um, and I think those, they're very politically astute, or at least politically aware. Uh, and they, those judges will probably feather back on Chevron quite a bit because they're not certain what the Supreme Court would do if they relied heavily on the Chevron doctrine in a big case. Uh, so you'll probably see um, a continued uh, uh, turning away from Chevron in a politically sophisticated court like the D.C. Circuit. Now, what happens in the Sixth Circuit and the Eighth Circuit and all that is another question. Um, I think there, uh, you know, the judges are not reading the Washington Post every day, and uh, they probably um, still think Chevron is the law of the land, or at least is good law. And you may get some more Chevron uh, opinions out of those circuits than they would out of the D.C. circuit. Um, again, uh, eventually the Supreme Court is going to have to clear all this mess up. Uh, and what vehicle they will choose to do that in, I have no idea. Uh, or how they will do it, do it in bits and pieces or do it all at once. Again, it's very much up, up for grabs. But I think the picture will be mixed. And I'd, I'd be rather surprised if the left wing or Obama appointed judges on the D.C. Circuit um, plunge ahead with Chevron, uh, given the signals that uh, the Supreme Court might be looking for an, a case to shoot it down. Professor, I'll stick with you, actually, for uh, to give you the first crack at this one. So we've, we've talked about the practical implications. Let's zoom out a little bit. Let's think about administrative law in general. What do you think that the recent trend with respect to Chevron, not overturning it, but also not exactly citing it or really talking about it, tells us about the path of administrative law in general at the Supreme Court right now as we've undergone personnel changes in recent years? Right. Well, I think the Supreme Court is definitely uh, uh, skeptical about uh, aspects of the administrative state. I think you've seen some tightening of the uh, unitary executive principle uh, in terms of the appointments uh, and removal powers uh, of uh, people that serve on administrative agencies or in sub-agencies and so forth. Um, I think that there's uh, the pattern of recent grants suggests that there may be some uh, tightening about the power of agencies like the SEC to assign cases to administrative law judges that work exclusively for the SEC and therefore have a record of always ruling in favor of the SEC. Um, and, and I think there's movement across the board to sort of uh, tighten up a little bit on the uh, discretion uh, afforded to administrative agencies uh, to the extent that the court can easily do so under existing precedent and, and the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, 
I, I don't think the court is going to rule that the administrative state is unconstitutional and that we should go back to the simple three-part three, three part government structure that we had in 1789. Um, uh, you know, the court may be willing to take some bold moves on some fronts like the abortion right, uh, but I don't think they're prepared to overturn everything that the federal government does as being uh, beyond the powers of what the Constitution authorizes. Uh, so, for example, on, de on delegation, it's in, it's in, uh, to me, I've written about this. So uh, there really are two delegation doctrines. There's the old fashioned delegation doctrine that says that Congress has to, uh, has to decide all questions of uh, it has exclusive power to legislate. And that means that Congress can't give too much discretion to agencies. There has to be an intelligible principle or maybe there has to be some it has to be filling in the details as opposed to making basic policy choices as Gorsuch would have it. Uh, that's the old non-delegation doctrine. The, the doctrine that comes out of West Virginia is really a different delegation doctrine, which says that no agency has inherent authority to act unless it can point to some statute that gives it the power to act. In other words, there has to be a delegation before an agency, or for that matter, the President of the United States can start doing something. Uh, I think the court has prepared, uh, the major questions doctrine is a signal of this, to enforce that second doctrine pretty strictly. And maybe Gorsuch and the other people who would like to see the first doctrine tightened up will be satisfied with that. I, I don't think Roberts or the other people uh, sort of in the right center of the court are in any way prepared to declare uh, a full-scale revival of the non-delegation doctrine as a matter of constitutional law and to start declaring, you know, the SEC and the FCC and the FTF and the Federal Trade Commission and so forth, not to mention the Federal Reserve Board, you know, unconstitutional for having too much discretionary power. Jakob, I'll, I'll go to you as well. Can you talk a little bit about what trends you see in administrative law generally that might be exemplified or might run counter to actually this trend of uh, the court not really citing Chevron, but also not overturning it? Sure. I don't have a lot to add to the professor's answer on that question, actually. I think he mostly covered it. Um, I do think that the the direction that we're seeing on Chevron and a, a deference to agencies is um, is rooted in the separation of powers ideas that are, have also been manifesting in other doctrinal developments that affect administrative law, like appointments clause, for example. You know, it, the, the, these are the areas where the court has been active and willing to. Um, to sort of cut back a bit on the breadth and degree of discretion that uh, that agencies have. But I, I also agree with the professor that I don't think we have yet a majority on the court that's willing to go a whole lot more aggressive than that, although they may be forced to um, confront the issue because there are some fairly forceful lower courts um, that are willing to take some of these ideas further and you know, that tees them up or, or sort of forces the Supreme Court to take a stand on them. So, you know, we did see, uh, I think the professor referenced one of the a recent Fifth Circuit decision that talked about um, delegation in the context of SEC uh, enforcement power. And I know there's some other pending cases that have been being litigated that um, push on the boundaries of some of these doctrines, you know, building off of some of the concurrences or just the sense um, that uh, some members of the court have written, but that haven't yet um, found a full majority on the court. So 
I think we're going to have a few more of these interesting cases over the next uh, number of terms. Perfect. So with that, I'm going to start turning to our audience questions. Uh, and we really have do have some good audience questions. One theme that has been consistently coming up throughout the Q&A, and, and Professor Merrill, I'll pose this one to you because you brought up delegation. How exactly does Chevron interact with non-delegation? We know that the court, or at least some members of the court, are thinking about reviving non-delegation. You've spoken about it as, you know, it is another trend going on right now in administrative law. But but could you could you draw that line for us to the extent there is one uh, between Chevron or even the major questions doctrine um, and and delegation as we might see it within the next few years? Well, I'll try the um, I think the lasting legacy of Chevron, uh, whatever ultimately comes of it, is that Chevron uh reoriented the whole question of the standard of review that courts adopt in reviewing agency uh, legal interpretations um, to the idea of delegation. Uh, There's a little bit of this in the pre-Chevron case law, but not a lot. But Chevron squarely poses the issue in terms of delegation. Did, Did Congress expressly or implicitly delegate interpretive authority to the agency? Uh, and I don't think that that's going to change. I think that that is now a lasting feature of our law. So there's built into the whole Chevron doctrine, this idea of delegation. And, and the controversy is really over what do we mean by an implicit delegation? I mean, express delegations are rare. It's when Congress says to the agency, well, you decide what the word unemployment means or something like that. Uh, implicit delegations are arguably all over the place. Uh, there was a time period uh, when the Supreme Court, under the influence of our friend Justice Scalia, said that any ambiguity in an agency statute is an implicit delegation. I think the court is probably very uncomfortable with uh, accepting that at face value, and and I hope that that idea changes. But um, I think that the delegation is very much front and center uh, in Chevron. Now, the other non-delegation doctrine about Congress giving away too much power is not so clearly present in the Chevron line of cases. It, uh, it seems to me to be a little contradictory to say that Congress can't give away too much discretionary discretionary power to an agency unless it does so in a clear statement. You know, that seems to be kind of like a contradiction in terms that Congress, only Congress can legislate unless Congress clearly decides to give away the power to legislate. So I think this clear statement rule that comes out of West Virginia and, and builds in a way on Chevron or is, is clearly kind of a carve out from Chevron also resonates with the Chevron emphasis on delegation. So I think that the whole question of did Congress give the agency the power to do this is very much uh, going to be a central aspect of the law going forward. And my own position is that the courts in every case have to decide independently, reading the statute, whether Congress in fact did delegate authority to the agency over this particular issue that, that's before the court. Uh, that would be a backtrack from Chevron, but I think it's necessary to preserve the principles of separation of powers, in particular legislative supremacy. If I could offer another slide editorial, it seems to me that conservatives should support the idea uh, that Congress has exclusive power to uh, tell agencies what they can and can't do and what the limits of their power is, because Congress 
is by far the most representative body of the government that we have. It sort of reflects a diversity of perspectives across the country. Uh, it, it, there are all sorts of little veto gates or whatever you want to call them that prevent Congress from legislating too much or in too extreme fashion. Um, the other big idea that conservatives pushed uh, over the years was the unitary executive idea. I think part of the motivation for that was that the agencies are all captured by the left and therefore we need a strong executive to rein in the agencies. The problem with that theory is that if uh, the Democrats win the presidency, uh, the unitary executive theory uh, empowers the White House to enlist the agencies as rubber stamps for whatever the White House wants to do. And we've seen this all over the place, uh, first in the Obama administration, but more recently with the Biden administration, that the unitary executive is a double-edged sword. If, the, if you have a conservative president, okay, fine, that's a way of reigning in the administrative state. But if it's a Democratic president, then whammo, you've got an even more powerful administrative state than you had before. So I think this enforcing the idea that only Congress can delegate power uh, is the right way to try to achieve some kind of constraints on the overgrowth over of the administrative state. Yakov, another audience question uh, that I'm, I'm going to kick to you. I, there seems to be a rising consensus around textualism as a method of statutory interpretation. Uh, I guess the threshold question would be if you agree with that on, on the Supreme Court. But assuming that it's true, does that suggest less need now for Chevron than there was back when it was decided in the 1980s? Uh, does uh, maybe converging around one theory of statutory interpretation obviate the need for these other deference doctrines that we've built up? So I, I do agree with the premise generally that there is, has been some convergence around a textual approach, uh, even beyond the sort of conservative majority on the court. You know, you, the opinions that Justice Kagan writes don't look like the opinions from the court in the 1970s or the 1980s. There's much more of a starting focus on the text and what the text means. Um, that doesn't totally avoid the the, the the Chevron issue. I mean, I think it does uh, it does allow um, an off ramp in more cases um, through the the sort of traditional tools of statutory construction. You know, we've resolved the ambiguity this other way. Uh, that leaves less room for Chevron to operate because there's not as much ambiguity if we if we take a more rigorous textual approach to statutory construction. I, I don't think it totally avoids it because there are certain uh, terms that are they're just capacious and they're not, the statute isn't going to tell you, you know, how, whether to apply it this way or that way. Um, and that's why we're, we're still going to continue to have Chevron cases that come up. But I do think it's an, it's one way the court can minimize um, the agency uh, authority is to sort of make good use of those tools of statutory construction, which is, by the way, the, what we saw the court do with respect to our deference, right, um, is be more aggressive in using that initial toolbox of, of statutory interpretation so that there's less ambiguity for the agency to, to construe. And then, you know, you have some other carve-outs that, you know, cabinet further. I think what we're seeing with Chevron may sort of parallel what we saw with our deference in, you know, in the Kaiser case of a few years ago. Professor Merrill, I, this is a question that I think uh, really relates to this last term of the Supreme Court that we had. So two of the cases that I think many folks thought might be 
Chevron cases were American Hospital Association v. Becerra and then the Empire Health Foundation case, both of which were HHS cases. They concerned HHS interpretations of the Medicare statute. Obviously, neither of those cases ended up being Chevron cases. And so wondering if you think that is there a particular agency whose interpretation might lead to a case law that's better teed up for the court to do something about Chevron, NLRB, EPA, whatever, um, was, was a case coming out of an HHS interpretation just not a good vehicle because of the underlying agency that was involved for Chevron? Yeah, I think there is, there's clear, it's clearly true that different agencies um, uh, elicit different reactions from judges. Um, oddly enough, I think HHS traditionally was a, an agency where the court was uh, maximally inclined to invoke Chevron, um, basically because the statutes are very complicated. They affect large numbers of people. Uh, nobody uh, really, it, it doesn't make the front page of the New York Times. Uh, you know, it's not that uh, high profile a case and so forth. Uh, and I think the court had a sense that, you know, agencies like HHS um, uh, were, were pretty much, you know, sticking to their knitting and doing what they were supposed to do in terms of uh, administering the statutes that they had to administer. Um, so that, that makes that a rather odd case to sort of make a major statement about Chevron, other than sort of maybe to reaffirm Chevron, which the court was not ready to do for whatever reason, so they didn't say anything about Chevron in those cases. Um, other agencies are much more uh, controversial. EPA is controversial. Uh, NLRB is controversial. Uh, uh, the FTC is becoming very controversial. Um, uh, and the SEC and so forth can be controversial. So I, I would expect that if anything happens, it would be more likely to happen in a case that, uh, you know, generates a little bit more heat uh, in addition to, um, you know, light or light and heat. <laughs> Uh, but, but that's just a, a very crude uh, thought on my part. Um, you know, only time will tell what will happen. I mean, if you look back at the history of the Chevron Doctrine, the, 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 the one um, major uh, uh, kind of qualification of the Chevron Doctrine was in uh, United States versus Meade Corporation in 2001, which involved the uh, whether or not uh, uh, you know a tariff uh, classification rulings by the Customs Department uh, were uh, eligible for Chevron deference. The classification in question involved whether or not day planners of the Mead Corporation were diaries or were notebooks or something else like that. Obviously, nobody could care one whit about the substance of that argument. But the court chose that as, a, as the occasion to make a major adjustment in the scope of the Chevron Doctrine. So, again, who knows what the future holds? Jacob, a question for you. Uh, once we're now within the Chevron dynamic, whatever that means, there's been some discussion of using the traditional tools of statutory interpretation. One audience member asks, what are your thoughts about the role of the substantive canons of construction within the Chevron dynamics, such as the pro-veteran canon or the Indian canon? Uh, and going forward, do, do we see those as potentially um, retaining their vitality? And, and what role do they play when we're, when we're doing Chevron? Yeah, there, was a, there were some really interesting colloquies uh, this past term at the court between and among some of the justices touching on that issue. Um, Justice Kagan at one of the oral arguments 
was started sort of almost musing aloud about whether we should just get rid of all the substantive canons because they just sort of distort the way we look at statutes. And then I think somebody wrote a, con a concurrence sort of addressed this specifically, although I can't remember right now what case it was or who it was. Um, so people are thinking about this. And that is, I mean, those canons are part of the, the toolbox that I referenced earlier, the so-called traditional tools of statutory construction. I don't think that means that all of them are, are valid. <laughs> I think you've got to go one by one and sort of figure out where did this come from? Um, is there some principled basis for it? Often it's a constitutional basis, right? I mean, I always think of a rule of lenity as a due process informed, you know, substantive canon. And then there are others that just sort of seem to have appeared, you know, mysteriously in a, in a case and then cited, you know, by everybody as if it's a, a, a good rule when it really doesn't have a, a solid basis. But I think we are going to be hearing more about those canons because they take on more uh, importance when we're spending more time at step one which is what we seem to be doing. Excellent. Well, that about wraps up uh, uh, the questions that we got from the audience. Some fantastic questions, uh, I thought. And I want to thank our panelists, uh, Jakob Roth, Professor Thomas Merrill. This was really a fascinating discussion about Chevron, the future of deference uh, at agencies and at the Supreme Court. Um, so for the panelists, my name is Eli Nachmani. And I was really honored to moderate this discussion. I'm now going to turn it over to Jack Derwin with the Federalist Society to close us out. Thanks so much, Ellie, and to you, Yaakov, and Professor Merrill as well. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to today's event. You can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all the major social media platforms at FedSoc to stay up to date. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.